Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. Welcome to the Lundown, a podcast analyzing breaking news in architecture, housing and planning produced by Open City, which is a charity dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. From now on, by signing up as an Open City friend from £5 a month, you can get early ad-free access to the Lundown and free tickets to live recordings throughout the year. Plus, you get all the other benefits of being an Open City friend too, including access to an exclusive program of year-round in-person events. Also, by donating, you're supporting independent journalism, keeping the Lundown free and accessible for others, and directly helping Open City's wider educational work, particularly with children and young people from underrepresented communities. To sign up as an Open City friend and get early ad-free access to the Lundown, click the link in the show notes or visit opencity.org.uk slash friends. Thank you. On with the show. A new budget amid a wave of public sector strike disruptions. Three London buildings among the UK's most at risk of demolition. A fatal fire in an East London flat housing 18 people. And Elon Musk's vision for a new build utopia in Texas. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Lachlan Anderson Frank. Lachlan trained as an architect and is a town planner working at the London Borough of Enfield. Welcome to the show. Hi, Merlin. This week, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt unveiled his back-to-work budget as part of the government plan to resuscitate the UK's ailing economy, a major news event covered extensively across the national news. Ahead of his speech to Parliament, Hunt told Sky News he planned to, quote, break down the barriers that stop people here in the UK from working, end quote. The set-piece economic announcement came as waves of industrial action swept across the country, with key workers continuing to struggle with stagnated pay amid soaring inflation. Junior doctors, dental trainees, teachers, university staff and rail workers were among those striking this week after unions failed to reach agreements with the government. On Wednesday, the same day as the budget announcement, 133,000 civil servants from 124 government departments went on strike, demanding a 10% pay rise, as well as better pensions, job security and no cuts to redundancy terms. Meanwhile, new data from AJ has revealed the perilous state of the UK construction sector, with the value of projects starting on site dropping by 40% compared to 2022, and new planning applications slowing markedly. So, Lachlan, what's this all about? The Chancellor's budget is all about getting the economically inactive back to work. However, the number of strikes this week highlight the acute crisis facing many workers in many key industries. With so many people in work struggling to make ends meet, is it realistic to expect more people to rejoin the workforce without significant wage increases? 
Adding more people to the workforce to produce more products and services is just one of the ways the Chancellor has been hoping to improve Britain's economic performance. We've dropped to the weakest economy in the G7 group of large countries, mostly because GDP growth over the course of 2022 was essentially flat across the UK. Uh, the Chancellor was looking to focus investment by companies in research and equipment and has set tax breaks to do this. Uh, but it's not necessarily going to solve the problem of uh, wages in people's pockets. Yeah, it's an extraordinary situation because if you think about it, um, obviously a big chunk of this is people um, who are ill and disabled or long-term disabilities, right? Potentially some of that's come from the COVID pandemic, um, people getting long COVID or people not having illnesses seen to by the NHS. And then that kind of bulk of people um, growing and then that to the point where it is having a real impact on the economy. Obviously, we knew that a lot of the issues to do with how we dealt with the pandemic were, were built environment related, um, that we could have done more, that there could have been more done during the pandemic to limit infections but also afterwards more done to help people in that who then have long-term illnesses the the other thing to, to to bear in mind is that another big chunk of the people who are economically inactive are uh, older people um who maybe had jobs but for whatever reason step back from the workforce um some of these people are potentially quite asset rich uh, and in a situation where they might have bought a house for not very much in the 70s or 80s or early 90s now it's worth an enormous sum. Um, the value of the house goes up probably more than they er were earning in their income during those years. Uh, and they might be thinking, well, you know what, maybe maybe I can sort of uh, retire early. Uh, and something to bear in mind is that, I, you know, it's, it's almost like as long as, as long as that asset bubble dream keeps going, how on earth are you going to tempt someone back like that back into the workforce, especially when wages are so low? I mean, Maybe if the value of their house went down, they'd suddenly get, get a shake on and, and look for a job. There's certainly been a debate about whether people leaving the workforce in their late 50s and early 60s um, is to do with COVID or other reasons like low wages, etc. Um, I don't think that the data is necessarily that clear on what is the exact reason we're seeing such a drop off in labour force participation in that age group. Uh, what's interesting, obviously, is that we're here focusing on, on labour and employment. We know that the UK construction sector is very sensitive uh, to both of these issues. Um, and obviously, we focus on built environment and architecture on this show. What's the atmosphere like in the sector right now, uh, Lachlan, in your professional experience as a town planner? Um, how has soaring inflation and wage stagnation affected the sort of architecture and town planning sectors? Following on from Brexit, there are huge challenges in the sector in terms of finding people to do the job, whether it's architecture uh, and planning or in construction, of course. Um, and it will be interesting to see if more occupations are added to the shortage list, which allows visas to be granted. Um, I know that planners aren't currently on that list, despite there being huge kind of recruitment problems across the sector. Um, but on the other hand, the government has opened up other new visa routes, particularly for graduates from UK universities. And and some of those visa routes are actually uncapped. And we are starting to see, um, obviously, a different pattern of uh, migrants coming from a different set of countries, obviously not EU countries. Uh, but I'm not sure yet how that's going to affect the architecture and construction sector. And then when we think about planning, so labour shortage, what does that mean? Does it mean that planning officers have to have just way more workload? Or does it mean that things simply just don't get done or they take a lot longer to get done? Or what, what does it look like on the ground? 
in planning, my understanding is that about 50% of planners work in the public sector and 50% work in the private sector. That's based on RTPI, Royal Town Planning Institute data. Um, what we see, of course, the, the wages in the private sector are more competitive. And so we see people being pulled out of the, the public sector and into the private sector. And that just makes uh, recruiting to empty posts really, really challenging. And yeah, it certainly does for development management officers. You know, we're seeing them instead of having, for example, 25 or 50 cases at any one time, they're dealing with 100 planning applications at one time, which you can imagine means 100 potential emails on any given day, et cetera, et cetera. And that definitely leads to problems with the quality of the service. Yeah, I think it is. I couldn't deal with a hundred of any anything any given time. Um, the AJ reported this week that the value of projects starting on site has dropped by forty percent compared to twenty twenty two, and the number of new planning applications has slowed markedly. I mean, we were seeing things like this back in two thousand nine and two thousand ten. You know, this is like flashbacks to the last recession. Um, how will this impact house building? Um, especially public sector house building. Um, and, and how worried should we be about these figures? Is this, is this just a, a short one-off thing or is, is this really quite concerning? We should definitely be concerned. Uh, as you say, we've already seen a drop off in planning permissions last year to the lowest level in a decade and even lower than we saw during the pandemic. Uh, and given the squeeze on household finances and higher interest rates and mortgage payments, uh, it, we should all be bracing for a hit to housing delivery really. Um, and that goes as much for the public sector as the private sector. Uh, I believe the uh, the local government uh, rate of borrowing from the Treasury is 4.5%, so very high. And that was recently put up by 1%. So that, of course, is going to infect the house building programs of local authorities. Uh, I can't speak for my authority because I'm not involved in the house building uh, element of things, but uh, definitely seeing uh, concerns across the sector. Um, and it's just to note as well that we do have a highly cyclical housing market in the UK that's very dependent on private investment. Uh, and so unless we're expecting to see a huge investment in new social housing to counter that cycle, we likely are going to see housing delivery drop off over the next few years. The 20th Century Society has launched a major new campaign dubbed The Risk List, highlighting the 10 buildings across the UK most at risk of demolition or redevelopment. The list, which was covered by AJ last week, includes three London buildings. Paula Moyer's Bastion House, above the old site of the Museum of London, the Richard Rogers-designed Channel 4 headquarters, and the Matrix-designed collective's Jaganari Centre in Whitechapel. The Building Heritage Campaign group drew attention to the more than 50,000 buildings which are demolished each year in the UK, a huge number which equates to 126 million tonnes of waste and embodied carbon. C20 director Catherine Croft said, quote, In addition to being of architectural and historic interest, all 10 buildings are the product of considerable past investment in building materials and construction resources. The embodied energy which this represents would be squandered by demolition. Knocking them down would have a considerable and totally avoidable negative environmental impact, end quote. She went on to say that all of the buildings, quote, deserve to survive and that the positive benefits of keeping them are immeasurable, end quote. So, Lachlan, as well as the three London buildings, the risk list also includes the Scottish Widows HQ in Edinburgh, the Point in Milton Keynes, the Ringway Centre in Birmingham, the Riviera Hotel Weymouth, Norco House in Aberdeen, Cardiff County Hall, and the monolithic West Burton Cooling Towers. What do you make of this list? I mean, it does seem like a lot of important culture 
cultural heritage facing the wrecking ball. I have a huge amount of sympathy uh, for the 20th Century Society and the work that they do. Uh, huge kind of fan here. But every year we see important buildings being put at risk, um, whether 20th century or not. Um, some uh, members of parliament have proposed amendments to the leveling up and regeneration bill to require permission for buildings which are on local heritage lists rather than being nationally listed by Historic England uh, to be demolished. So that would mean that if you were going to demolish one of these local listed buildings, you would need to apply for planning permission from the local authority who had designated it. Um, it will be really interesting to see if that gets through. I would be surprised if government were interested in placing further restrictions on development, given the slowdown we've discussed. Um, nationally listed buildings are designated by Historic England, so there's a level of governance there uh, that locally listed buildings don't have, and that's just been prepared by local authority officers. Um, so I would be surprised if the government was willing to kind of extend the protections of listed buildings to uh, locally listed buildings. It would be interesting to hear your thoughts on the community and cultural value uh, that is embodied in some of these buildings. Like, certainly, I'm quite shocked to think that the Channel 4 headquarters uh, could be demolished or, you know, is at risk. It's a beautiful building. Uh, also, the Paolo Moyers Bastion House, um, it's like a stunning building. It's really beautiful very modernist, uh, never been in there. Um, probably the interior isn't that exciting as well. I don't think I'd necessarily want to go. It's probably like quite an average office building, but um, it does look cool from the outside and it does feel like unnecessary to be demolishing something like that. I think some of these questions are really, um, they're, they're really topical because we're seeing that the planning system is increasingly having to deal with questions of making trade-offs around kind of heritage and environmental sustainability. Um, but one of the challenges, I think, is that that does sit within the kind of um, the planning application system. And that's almost too late, as it were, once proposals have already been formed to demolish a building. And that's where that consideration, that balance of trade-offs has been, is, is happening at the application stage. Um, we don't have a regulator really per se for the sustainability of construction projects. So most of these decisions are in terms of whether to list a building or not, that's being made within a kind of heritage system. And that system tends, as you've alluded to, to be more actually quite focused on the kind of viability of keeping buildings um, and, and whether that's kind of the most sort of profitable thing to be doing. Uh, and I don't think at the moment it's necessarily considering as much the kind of environmental aspects of it. But what we're seeing with some of these key uh, planning inquiries, public inquiries that Michael Gove has um, started up on, for example, the, the M&S building on Oxford Street. I mean, I, I think in that case, partly because of the planning framework we have in London, which does look a, a little bit at embodied carbon, we will start to see some of those elements being brought in. Um, but in terms of the cultural value, I mean, it is still about that process. It's a very process-driven system where you've got um, kind of historic England making those assessments of the cultural value of buildings. And in, in general, the only way to influence that is through the type of campaigning that the 20th Century Society does. One of the buildings on the at-risk list is Bastion House, something we've mentioned many times on the show before. It's really interesting that the AJ has reported that the City of London Corporation is issuing new guidelines to developers, um, requiring people coming forward with planning applications um, for the City of London Square Mile to carry out detailed studies before submitting schemes for planning. Crucially, 
they will require that developers consider alternatives to demolition. Now, what's interesting with that list is it includes Bastion House, um, which is actually owned by the City of London Corporation. Um, and there are plans out uh, to consultation to demolish Bastion House and, and rebuild it as a new office building. Uh, this was land originally uh, intended for the Centre of Muse Centre for Music, uh, which was scrapped, and it's where the Museum of London is was until recently. But it's it's going over to West Smithfield in a few years. Um, so, Lachlan, what's going on here? The City of London seems to be sending a clear message to developers who want to build in the Square Mile, yet so far not implementing its own guidance. It's really interesting. I, I wasn't aware of that uh, particular scheme uh, for demolition, but uh, I mean, it certainly could be a case of the left arm not talking to the right. If the new guidance comes in at the appropriate time, then of course, I'm sure that the City of London Corporation will need to meet that requirement and produce the justification for the demolition. Um, I've certainly heard of examples where that work has been done and the detailed modeling has been used to suggest that a demolition would actually be more, uh, you know, sustainable in terms of the full embodied carbon across the whole life cycle of the building than would be, uh, you know, a, a retrofit. But I think the devil is definitely in the details with these kinds of large scale projects. Tower Hamlets Council has launched a criminal investigation after a man died following a fire in a shockingly overcrowded residential flat. Father of two, Mizinder Rahman, was tragically killed when the cramped two-bedroom flat he lived in with up to 17 other men caught fire in Shadwell in the early hours of the 5th of March. This story headlined BBC London News earlier this week as it emerged that residents of the block had raised concerns with Tower Hamlets Council over our overcrowding several times before the fire. A spokesperson for the local authority said, quote, We had visited this property previously following complaints and issued enforcement. We are now carrying out a criminal investigation under the Housing Act, end quote. The Guardian reported that at least 18 men, mostly students and delivery couriers, were living in the post-war council block apartment at the time. According to one of their sources, some people slept in the kitchen and altogether the tenants paid the leasehold owner... £8,000 a month in rent. One resident in the block of flats said, quote, we feared for our safety. There were many guys living there. If there was a fire, we were worried. And we mentioned that to the council. So Lachlan, this is an absolutely tragic story. Uh, unfortunately, overcrowded houses and flats are not uncommon. The 2122 National Housing Survey revealed that 732,000 homes across the country are overcrowded. The census also revealed that Tower Hamlets is one of the most overcrowded boroughs in the in the country. Um, the BBC reported horrific conditions in this flat, uh, including bed bugs, damp, mould, plumbing issues, uh, due to so many people sharing just the one toilet. So Lachlan, are we, are we seeing a return to slum living here? There is certainly a lot of very poor quality housing in London, not least because of the age of some of our housing stock. Uh, and when that's in the private rented sector, it's not necessarily been um, modernized appropriately. Um, in recent years, though, there's actually been some really encouraging shifts, mainly uh, led actually by Theresa May to regulate uh, the private rented sector, bringing in kind of registers for local authorities. Um, I'm not sure that's always effective as probably local authorities don't have the resources to go out and inspect accommodation, um, but the tools are kind of there and 
I, as I say, I think it's actually quite an encouraging picture that now there are some minimum standards for rented homes. We're going to see, I think, in the next year or so, uh, a new standard as well for the energy efficiency of rented homes. There's also uh, around electrical safety and gas safety, and those things have actually been really, really tightened in recent years. One thing I think is just kind of interesting to note as well is that Tower Hamlets is actually the authority in the country that is, has built the most homes in recent years. So new buildings going up around Tower Hamlets, big towers going up, partly because of the impact of Canary Wharf and the regeneration of East London and the Olympics. Um, and yet we're still seeing conditions like that. And I think that's something to kind of reflect on is that, you know, just because we're building lots and lots of new homes, much more than almost anywhere else in the country, uh, it doesn't necessarily solve problems with existing homes. And so obviously we're, we're talking about a fire in a flat. It was a leaseholder owned flat, but it was in a, a block that was built as social housing. Um, a block that, if you look at it, was, was probably built when like a very poor condition Victorian housing was being torn down across the East End to build uh, like the modern, healthy, rational housing of the future. In many ways, that's what makes this story so tragic, is that these homes were supposed to mark an end to this kind of appalling overcrowding and risk to human health, which was something which should have been consigned uh, to the history rather than the present day. But there's another context to this, is that we, you know, we had, you know, we've had the Grenfell fire, we've had the Grenfell inquiry, um, we've had you know, Housing Secretary Michael Gove launching a campaign called Make Things Right. Um, I mean, that just sounds so hollow, given the current context. I mean, I, I know this isn't social housing. This was a leaseholder unit. This is a kind of informal housing solution. But it's it's like, how, yeah, how can we have this kind of rhetoric? How can we have this kind of context? And politicians standing up and saying things like, make things right. Uh, people uttering words like, never again. And then because of these systemic reasons, yeah, because of all the pressure that's on land and housing, um, it, it, is it fair to say that nothing's changed? Gove is trying to bring in a new performance regime for social housing landlords. Um, and I think it'll be really interesting to see if the government provides any resources to match that. Um, it's one thing to kind of have just a, a, a stick to beat uh, local authorities with. I would just say that uh, in terms of the property you specifically mentioned in that fire in Tower Hamlets, um, although it's a leasehold property, the, 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 the local authorities, the freeholder, they're going to be responsible for all of the kind of fire um, related issues uh, in terms of that. So uh, I would say that it is still kind of lies with them in terms of the governance of the block and setting it up for dealing with fire appropriately. Um, but previous governments have had major social housing retrofit programs, which came with um, resources, but then also governance reforms attached. Um, one of the main uh, programs in the, the noughties was the stock transfer program, which involved um, residents voting about whether they want to be moved from local authorities to housing associations. Um, and, and there were lots of kind of strings attached, but also resources available. Um, one thing I always notice is that a lot of the housing in Tower Hamlets is actually really well looked after, um, partly because I think there were very wide scale stock transfers. And so where, where uh, stock transfers occurred, there was usually quite a significant resource to meet the kind of decent home standard uh, that came with that. So there was that kind of carrot and stick approach. And I'm not sure I've seen that from the current government. 
Elon Musk is planning to build a, quote, Texas utopia along the Colorado River, end quote. The Wall Street Journal reported on this extraordinary revelation this week. Uh, The billionaire Twitter and SpaceX CEO has bought three and a half thousand acres of land 35 miles from Austin, where he plans to build a town for employees of the nearby boring company SpaceX and Tesla sites. The new town, which is rumoured to be called Snailbrook, after the Boring Co.'s mascot, Uh, is set to feature homes for rents below market value offered exclusively to employees under the understanding that they must vacate the home if they leave the company or are fired. So luckily it's not Twitter employees in this case. Um, Elon Musk himself recently relocated to Texas after calling California the land of, quote, over-regulation, over-litigation, over-taxation. The music magazine NME reported that Musk has been consulting with musician Grimes, who he shares two children with, and also the rapper Kanye West, who started an architecture wing of his company Yeezy back in 2008. Um, So Lachlan, what do you make of this rather bizarre story? I think anything with Elon Musk is inevitably going to be quite controversial. I would say that some people might feel comfortable living under their employer's roof. Uh, Around 33,000 people live rent-free in the UK, although some of those people are property guardians, which is is slightly different, albeit they are employed to live in those places, in a sense. And I think there's always going to be that issue with the kind of power imbalance uh, in that situation. Um, And some people are comfortable with it um, or maybe don't have a better choice. Um, I think living in cities, though, it's quite a kind of a different proposition. You know, the whole idea of cities is to have a a kind of variety of people mixing and for employers to have access to a wider labor market. Um, And so in some ways, these kind of one company towns feels quite kind of anti-urban, isn't it? Um, And I think we should definitely be kind of questioning their resilience over the long term. I mean, what if that company were to go bust? Um, Or indeed, as you pointed out, if people were to lose their jobs, then they would also be losing their home. And I think that's a pretty, you know, kind of concerning situation. It's all because it's like part of me, I look back to the 19th century and these philanthropists investing money, like the Carnegie libraries or Peabody and the housing that was being set up and think, you know, if only the billionaires of the present era were these mega philanthropists uh, with with big visions for how to improve human society and civic society. uh, but then there's also, if you think of the 20th century and you think of the, it seems to be almost like a dystopian turn to it. These examples, well, the plan for Texas feels almost like a sort of planned and closed Soviet town set up for like nuclear engineers to work on a special plant or something. It, it doesn't really doesn't really seem quite as emancipatory as more just kind of like a, a limited authoritarian vision for 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 um, a, a techno futuristic uh, capitalist um, d- demand uh, you know that labor just plugs into your vision to to change the world through your um, through your products Another kind of key example is um, what Disney built in the 1950s in Florida, where they kind of built this huge um, as part of the resort um, and and housing some of the employees in the resort as well. And they were actually able to get some big concessions from um, the government in Florida, where they were able to almost have the company be the uh, local authority in that area. And it's been quite a controversial case recently where we've seen politicians um, actually withdrawing some of those powers because they didn't like the political 
statements, um, which were mostly kind of left wing, left of center or or certainly um, liberal um social social values that Disney was espousing and that was not kind of chiming with what the the, the political mood was in Florida um, so I think it is really really tricky um, and and certainly a challenge for you know kind of local authorities and so on and so forth to deal with these kind of places because we it does mean vesting a huge amount of power into a single company and I think in some ways that is kind of fundamentally at odds with a, a liberal society. So we're now on to the culture section where we profile what's up and coming uh, in London's built environment and architecture cultural space. Um, This week, big news, there's a brand new architecture exhibition opening at the Africa Centre in South London. It's quite near to the South Bank. Really cool building that's been converted by a firm called Freehouse. The exhibition is called Breaking Ground, a a renegade approach, and it poses key questions about how architecture responds to our climate and ecological emergency and how design responds to women's safety and community cohesiveness. This is an exhibition put together by Bolade Design Studio, which is celebrating five years of architecture practice. The exhibition explores five key themes using the practices projects, which adopt sustainable and regenerative approaches to respond to some of these pressing issues in society. Themes include city shaping, retrofit, net zero homes, community building and innovation in construction. Um, So that's pretty much everything we love to cover on on London. Um, And the show runs until the end of the month. Okay, um, next thing uh, on the cultural radar is Open House Festival 2023. Uh, The Open House team at Open City is well underway with preparations for the 23 festival. So if you're thinking about contributing to the festival, that could be in leading a tour or in uh, opening up an amazing building, um, either a building that you look after or maybe a project that you've worked on as an architect, um, now's a great time uh, to come forward uh, with questions about opening up a space in this year's festival. And to facilitate that, the Open House Festival team are running a series of in-person drop-in sessions at various locations around the city. This is the go-to place uh, if you want to be included in the Open House Festival. Um, So our upcoming sessions are on the 23rd of March at the People's Museum in Somerstown, uh, on the 5th of April at Social Life, Peacock Yard, and on the 26th of April at Grow in Hackney. Um, to find out more, visit the Open City website. Lachlan, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on this week's show. Thank you so much. Um, where can listeners go to stay up to speed on your writing and work? Is there a social media handle or website they should visit? Thanks, Merlin. Yeah. Uh, listeners can reach me on Twitter at L Anderson underscore Frank. Uh, and I'm quite active on there. Fantastic. Thanks again for being on this week's show. Thanks, Merlin. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City in association with the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and a ton of other benefits while supporting independent journalism, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring, Merlin Fulcher, Rachel Capel, Ella Jessel and me, Phineas Harper. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, 
accessible and equitable. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.